0: Uh, come when he did, and we've talked about various reasons. Uh, we had good highways, the word could spread, uh, uh, the common language. Uh, in the last couple of three weeks, I heard David Brooks, the the uh, communist? No, not communist. The uh, liberal. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to categorize him. He, he's on PBS, he's in the New York Times, but he's a well. A really good author, uh, speak, and he spoke on character. He has a book on character, and uh, he talked about uh, how that at the time Jesus came, you had the Roman Empire that uh, elevated the emperor, the good of the empire, conquering power. You had the Jews, on the other hand, living in subservience to the Romans, resenting every moment of it, uh, and uh, looking to restore their kingdom, their nationalistic pride, and you interject into that Jesus, who starts off his first sermon, our blessed of the meek. In that culture, meekness was a, a characteristic that was uh, derided. You were chastised if you were weak. Although meekness doesn't necessarily mean weak weakness. It means humility and something else. So uh, then when we read last week in chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy of your calling. Worthy of your calling. You know, we have a, have a calling to conduct ourselves in a certain way, live our lives a certain way. Uh, when I was called into the family of Willis and Dolly Dean, it, it was in, in, embedded into my DNA. This is how you live if you, if you have this name, Dean. <clears throat> especially if you were related to Willis and Dolly. We didn't have any money, but what we had were values of integrity and honesty, hard work, uh, kindness. And uh, uh, so that was, that was what I was called to do. And if I didn't abide and stay in that path, I was corrected to get back in the path uh, through a stern discipline. Uh, as it turns out from my mother with a big old switch, and then you, didn't, you did not want her to say, Willis, you need to talk to him. <laughs> that was what you did not want to happen. Uh, you did not want that to happen. So, anyway, a new paradigm. Jesus had a new paradigm. and if You look at the Sermon on the Mount, all the blessings, but then immediately then you have heard, but now I tell you. You've heard... Divorce is okay, but I tell you, you've heard about adultery, but I tell you, if you even look upon a woman to think about it, so that's what we're talking about. And so today we're in chapter 5, verses, uh, all of chapter 5, and I'm going to cover down through 21, hopefully, and talk about that, and then uh, Josh will, will wrap the chapter up. Let's take a quick look. Follow God's example in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love for others, following the example of Christ, who loved you, gave himself as a sacrifice to take away your sins. And God was pleased because that sacrifice was like a sweet perfume. Um, other versions say a sweet aroma. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, agreed upon among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is really an idolater who worships the things of the world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the terrible anger of God comes upon all who disobey Him. Don't participate in... The things these people do, for though your hearts were once full of darkness, you are now full of light from the Lord, and your behavior should show it. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, rebuke and expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But when the light shines on them, it becomes clear how evil these things are. And where your light shines, it will expose their evil deeds. That is why it is said, awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live, not as fools, but as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the will of the Lord is. <clears throat> understand what the Lord wants you to do I'm, 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 I'm remembering the other version I'm reading That's, uh, don't, don't act thoughtlessly but try to understand don't be drunk with wine let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you then you will sing psalms hymns, spiritual songs among yourselves making music to the Lord in your hearts and you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then further you will submit to one another out of reverence to Christ okay live as children of light Follow God as example, we are his children, awesome responsibilities. Live a life filled with love for others. And again, think about that new paradigm, not just living for yourself, embellishing your own self, but looking at others and what you can do for others. He gave himself as a sacrifice, a sweet aroma. Uh, Mitch Edgeworth, if he was in here this morning, he's a competitive barbecuer. I think of the sweet aroma of a barbecue. Uh, and all those burnt sacrifices, uh, and uh, the Jews made that meat burning had to had to, it smelled good. Uh, when you think about our calling today, I heard some estimates that uh, it used to be five to eight to ten percent of our of Americans lived alone. It's more like twenty four to twenty five percent now. In some cities, up to forty percent of people live alone think about our calling to serve others, there has to be tremendous loneliness. Why do you think all of those bars downtown are, are full? People are looking for relationships. They may not be in there just to drink, but where can I not be alone? And that, that becomes that becomes the center of activity. Uh, <clears throat> Stand I remember the culture of the day, the day of the Ephesians. Uh, Uh, the big temple of of Artemis, the the goddess of the moon and the hunt, Um, and he calls us to to new standards. Verse 3, let there be no sexual immorality. Now how many of you are tired of reading every day in the last month or two? How many politicians, how many people, how many business people have, have resigned or been caught up in some sexual immorality? We've had how many congress people now resign? At least 2 or 3 or 4 and probably there'll be more. I'm getting no reaction. I have these I have these faces that are <laughs> devoid of, of emotion. We're sick of We're sick of it too. But but think about, but think about the new standard. It's that Jesus is calling us to. Uh when uh, in my career I I came out of school in 60, 65 was my year, but uh, I was one semester late because I interned. So January 66 is when I graduated. And in public accounting, there were no women, essentially. Uh, There were no women. I think 66 or 67, we hired our first uh, woman accountant. And it caused a firestorm. One from the wives of the husbands. Because now you say, well, are they going to travel? You know, travel with my husband? I don't think so. And then we had a couple of women actually visit the managing partner of our office. Well, my husband's not traveling with a woman. We had a second issue, and that was would clients accept them? Well, not all of our clients would accept women accountants out on the job. And so we struggled, as with all businesses, uh, how, how will we conduct ourselves? Because you throw men and women who aren't married now into a close working relationship, if they're, if they're only two, and they, are they gonna travel in the same car? Are they gonna go out to dinner each night if they're out of town, they're working together? If, if two men, they normally have dinner together. <coughs> so there were all kinds of ethical Possible ethical things to deal with.
1: Hilton, I think the the whole sexual harassment thing, real quick, is
0: that we're living through a cultural shift right now. If you think back just in my lifetime,
1: when the whole, you know, LGBT, the whole gay thing, you were not allowed, you know, (coughs) certain things went. You could say certain things and do certain things in the workplace. Now it's absolutely taboo. It's
0: gone way the other way. Same thing. Thankfully,
1: in this whole sexual harassment deal, because culturally it was okay to talk down the women and treat them differently, and so I think this is a positive, you
0: know, um, enlightenment because this will shift in culture. There's no, this will no longer be accepted anymore in Hollywood and all the way. My, our daughters just took a job and worked for Eliot and Cowan. Mm-hmm. They lay down the red carpet for these women. Mm-hmm. It's completely shifted. They Correct. Decided But really, all the sexual immorality is nothing new. It's in the Bible, as Josh alluded to, in the story of Tamar in Genesis uh, with Judah. Uh, She (laughs) pretended to be a prostitute. Judah slept with her uh, uh, and and produced an offspring. Uh, Certainly, uh, Absalom and the other Tamar, Absalom, raped his own sister. Uh, David has a a man killed so he can take his wife. Uh, there, the, sexual immorality was no, there's nothing new about that. Uh, but we're called to a new standard. We're called to a new standard. So uh, adopting adopting that ethic, you will do what you need to do to keep yourself out of a position where you are tempted to do that. Uh, you, you, you don't need to be having intimate dinners with them, somebody that's not your wife. Uh, glass and doors so that nobody can accuse you of being involved in something behind a closed door uh, so everybody can see what's going on in that office, Uh, having other people present. Uh, N.T. Wright says casual sex is a parody of the the real thing and it is because of the love that should be involved. So anyway he's calling upon them for a new new standard. Yeah?
1: most of us would agree that we had we didn't have conversations about sex or anything like that with our parents. Right. And I think one thing that's positive for us and one thing my wife and I talk about is the, the open door conversations we have with our kids. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's forcing us to do that or if we're just trying to reshape the way that we think, but um, I know there are a lot of things that I've shared with, with people that know me. I mean, I, I think this is a, a positive shift For Christians, especially for young Christian parents, right, who can have the opportunity to really have open door conversations with their kids, because I mean, we don't even turn on the news anymore in the morning. So when they do hear things, or they do see things, or they do have questions. we just keep enforcing our kids like, just come and talk to mom and dad. Right. Any time, any place, anywhere. I didn't have that. Well, you, you're a lot,
0: you're a lot younger than I. I didn't have it either. You know, I was still in the Victorian age, <laughs> just coming out. And the, you think about it, I was a teenager in the 50s, uh, in the era of when Hugh Hefner was just coming along, and the, and the Playboy magazines were under the counter at the newsstand in town, but they weren't out on the shelf. And so all of that sexual revolution was really beginning as I was struggling with it as a teenager, and we certainly didn't talk about it much. But we knew what, we were, we were preached against by what was wrong, but there was not a lot of positive uh, 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 preaching about what you should do. And along with the sexual immorality, obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness. So, again, you can lapse into a habit of, uh, of language, of, of laughing at the coarse stories, you, know, you don't want to be a prude. You're in a group of of, of people, or especially men, and somebody's constantly telling crude stories, uh, and it's oftentimes hard to just walk off. But uh, after a while, you, you, you've got to get that in and in, in built into your own uh, method of operation so that you don't put yourself in those situations. But even in just language, a profanity can creep in. It becomes a habit. Says these things are not to you, fill your life instead with thankfulness to God. Then you can be sure that no immoral, impure, greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Did you, did you notice that little nuance, the kingdom of Christ and of God? Are there two kingdoms? No? The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of God, what's, what's, the, what's the difference? I take silence as a. Okay, there's a, a little nuance? If you, if you look at First Corinthians fifteen, Christ is reigning and will put everything under his subjection under his feet, and then deliver the kingdom back to God at the end. So, so go back. Go back to. You have a hint. There was a kingdom meant from the beginning. God was supposed to be our king from, from, the, from the Garden of Eden. Exodus 19 talks about if you just obey me, you'll be a kingdom of priests. But they then wanted a human king, wanted to be like everybody else. They abandoned God as their king. And so Jesus is going to put it back like it's supposed to be. And he is reigning now, but at the end all knees will bow to Jesus and he will deliver his kingdom to God. A greedy person will not inherit the kingdom. He's an idolater. Uh, that uh, the idolatry seemed to be the breaking point for God in the Old Testament. When, when Israel, he says, when you go into the promised land, don't do what? Don't worship those idols that they've got over there. Worship me. You're, you're the living God, Jehovah. And what would happen? Don't marry. Don't marry the women. Don't intermarry because of what? The religion. The religion. They'll they'll entice you into their religion, and uh, so uh, as as idolatry is this terrible thing. He equates greediness as the danger, because you're worshiping something. You you gotta have more. I'm living for more. Don't be fooled. By those who try to excuse these sins, the terrible anger you are going to face judgment. For though your heart's once full of darkness, you're now full of light. Somebody says those words in verse 8 could be the key to all of Ephesians. You were once this, but now you're this. For this light within you produces what is good and right and poor. The the, the essence of that verse, uh, this light that is within you, you are now light. You're not walking in light, although First John says you are. Here it says you are, literally are light. You were once darkness, and now you are light. <clears throat> of course, all the analogy, you can preach sermons on this forever. Shine, you shine light on a problem to analyze a problem that's not where you can see it. You don't know what it is. But we are light to the world. In the meantime, we are Jesus, hands and feet, without us, who's going to see Jesus? We are the hands and feet of Jesus, right? And that's an awesome, that's an awesome responsibility to even consider, is that we are light, and light exposes, obviously. Uh, John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is, but he's gone away to heaven, he's left us behind as his representatives uh verse 15 through 21 be careful how you live wise versus fools make the most of every opportunity this is the one fear i've always had about my life as you go through so fast in life every day is full of activity you have your job you got the family the kids are screaming but somebody's sick you got this party you got this doctor appointment then you're taking care of the elderly parents You you're full of activity along the way there are opportunities and who among us feels like you've recognized the opportunities fully that come your way the person that you uh, the relationship that you could possibly have with somebody to help them you glossed over because you were busy you didn't notice the anxiety on their face Uh, all the things this is a real challenge to us as Christians of making the most of opportunities. And there are opportunities every day. There They're investment opportunities. I look back. Why didn't I buy why, why didn't I buy why didn't I buy uh, that stock when it was nothing? This Bitcoin stuff. I'm not buying that because I don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> How can you create something from nothing and call it Bitcoin and it has a value? Without the full faith and credit of the United States of America. I don't I don't think so. When, when, when Warren Buffett says he's buying it, then I'll buy it. <laughs> but other than that, there are plenty of. And if you're making tons, if you've already made a million dollars this week on Bitcoin, God bless you. God bless you. Uh, verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine. I don't resent it. And remember to tithe. Yeah, we walk. <laughs> oh, yeah. We want ten
1: percent.
0: When we, when we uh, lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, the state of Florida introduced the first lottery in the state, and it was the first the first game. The first week was one of the scratch-off cards. One of the members at the Northwest Church. He said, found the card. Million <laughs> <laughs> dollars. And he gave 100000 to the church, and we were all right with it. <laughs> Don't be drunk with wine. Now, when I was coming along, you can't drink. It doesn't say you can't drink. Uh, last night, we had, our, had a couple of small groups at our house, and I went around and I said, here are the three choices for drinks. We have sparkling cider, non-alcoholic. We have sparkling water and regular water. And so I said, I want red wine. I said, we're the only tea left in
2: Nashville.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a glass of wine is okay.
2: Just
0: but you're not going to find it at our house. <laughs> at our. But don't be drunk with it. He says instead, again, the new paradigm, let the Holy Spirit fill you. Fill you with that. And of course, you know, drunkenness is condemned. It dulls your senses. As the old country song says, tequila makes her, fo- her clothes fall off. A lot, a lot of bad things happen when you're drunk. Particularly if you, if you just walked in. And you got you to put this in context. I'll get another
1: quick you, you gotta, and just in. You got to put this in you gotta put
0: this in context. Okay.
1: Maybe I should put that in context. We were at the Grand Old Opry when whatever Country Star was saying that and we had one of his business associates with us. I thought the two of them were gonna have to stretch it's out. First time I'd ever heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so okay.
0: And then and then uh, the singing, uh, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, don't be wrong. You'll sing with songs, uh, song, hymn, spiritual songs. We don't know a lot about the singing that took place in the early church at that time. It certainly wasn't four-part harmony. Uh, you know, we have people here who get upset with us because second service is too loud, it's too slow, it's not fast enough, it's this or it's that, first service. And so they'll vote with their feet occasionally. Uh, but singing has taken all kinds of <laughs> shapes and forms in the last few hundred years, as four-part harmony did develop. I was going through some stuff in my, in my uh, desk the other day, and I found this book. And it is an original Sacred Heart songbook that belonged to my grandfather, Dean, Walter L. Dean. And on the front, W.L. Dean this is the 1936 version anybody were anybody at the token show recently
1: i was going to say uh, if, if you're going to have a raffle i'll uh, take <laughs> <No>. it <laughs> over no.
0: this is the only thing i have that's here I, I i have over in the corner of our den is their old victrola the crank
1: mm-hmm.
0: i have the, so the two things but anybody at tokens recently what did they do there was
1: a, they, yeah.
0: they did a they did a sacred hearts song anybody know what sacred heart is
1: the Fasola.
0: Fas-o-la. <laughs> they sang Fasola me essentially. And they would sing. There was a way to sight-read music because the notes had shapes and the altos would sit here, tenors over here, basses, and, and then they would sing to each other using notes and then they would sing the words. Once they knew the tune, they would sing the words. As far as I know, the law singing didn't take place during actual worship but being at like an afternoon event. But they would do only the words in worship. But the singing has not always been like it is now. But chanting, whatever it took place, do it in the white way. And then let me wrap up quickly and let, let Josh have it. Verse 21. And further, as he's talking about what you're going to do if you're a Christian with the new paradigm. Further, you will submit to one another. All of us as Christians, we will put the other person's best interest ahead of our own. Submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Think about what was the situation in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve existed on an equal basis. They helped each other. And when sin occurred, the relationships were turned upside down. Women's pain and childbirth increased. Adam had to work by the sweat of his brow, and there were thorns in amongst the good plants now. He had to deal with all the bad things that came as a result of the whole balance being upturned by sin. And so this mutual submission is a new idea. So Josh, how do you expect relationships?
2: Um so 521 says, submit to one another, and, uh, and 22 goes on to say, wives, submit to husbands. So we've got some, so Hilton and I arm wrestle, and I lost, so I had to do this one. Um, my wife is in here. She might have to leave to go do something later, but it's not because she's, I uh, think, disagree necessarily. That's, yeah, we'll see, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't gotten her to obey this teaching very well. Um, so, move this out of the way. Um, let me back up just a few verses uh, to, to kind of set up what we get here in uh, 521 and following. There's kind of an interesting um, structure uh, in the Greek to how he writes this. So back up in uh, 5.18, I think it is, um, be filled with the Spirit. <coughs> so this is 5.18. And then the next verbs we come across are not uh, kind of standalone verbs. They're participles. So he explains being f- to be filled with the Spirit looks like... Um, Uh, speaking to one another in psalms, uh, singing, thanksgiving. So, in a sense, it's saying something like, these are the kind of things you do as one filled by the Spirit, or to be more filled by the Spirit. Included in this is verse 21, submitting to one another. So all of this is kind of spirit-filled activity. And then, so here's 18. This is 21. And then you get to 22 it just says, something like wives to husbands. So it doesn't have a verb, so you have to bring in a verb from the previous verse. So the reason I bring all this up is to show you that there's this kind of transition happening here. Uh, this language of submitting in verse 21 is kind of a hinge. It's one way we are filled with the Spirit, lives of mutual submission. And then it's not as though Paul just, you know, takes a complete uh, 180 and turns to something else. It's, uh, and here's some examples of what this might look like as we submit to one another. So. All that we're about to read from 521, and we'll get to on next Sunday, 6, verse 9, uh, are uh, instances uh, that kind of fall under this larger category of submitting to one another. So he's going to talk to husbands and wives, uh, to children and parents, and to slaves and masters. So it's going to create some kind of tension as we think through this, uh, and since we're only getting to wives and husbands today, and it's falling under this category, keep in mind that this is also going to be somehow applying to the master-slave relationship. And so as we think through how Paul is speaking to the the wife-husband relationship in the first century culture, um, we might be uh, wary of thinking we've got to grasp this exactly like it is in that first century cultural setting because when we turn to chapter six, we're going to say we're going to hold that loosely when it comes to masters and slaves. So if we're going to be consistent we don't hold the master-slave thing firmly in grip as though this is the way that the culture should be today. And so to be consistent, we think, okay, so how do we apply that to what Paul's saying here where he's got some pretty specific teaching? Um, so let me give you some options for how we make sense of Paul's call for, um, in 521 through 33. There are kind of three ways, three primary ways to hear this. Uh, as Paul calls wives to submit to husbands. So I'll read verses 21 through 24, and then he turns and looks at husbands, which seems to be his real focus because that takes several more verses. But verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ or in the respect of Christ, wives to husbands as to the Lord, uh, because uh, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, likewise also wives to husbands in every way. All right, so a, uh, a fly-by reading, you just kind of skim the surface, pick up these verses, fly off. What it sounds like is whatever the man says goes. If the wives don't like it, too bad, deal with it in all things. Submit to your husband like you should submit to Christ. That's, this is what happens when we just kind of skim by and pull these verses out. If we hear these in context, we see that there's this larger submitting to one another in the framework, and then <coughs> it's followed up by a, um, the, the master-slave relationship. So we, it causes us, I think, if we're going to read with consistency, to think, okay, let's, let's dig a little deeper into this context. Let's think about the first century world. Let's think about what's going on here. And let's be wary of imposing. Uh, when we hear submission, we think, I know what that word is. When we hear head, we think, I know what that must mean instead, let's think about how these words are used by Paul. So we start off with the language of submission. Very interestingly, I thought it was, uh, was kind of neat that Hilton referred to this same passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about uh, Christ submitting uh, all things in himself to God. Same language here, upotasso. And we think about Christ's submission to God, we don't think superior to inferior. We think about some sort of of submission that happens between equals. Same language. And so when we hear Paul speaking about wives submitting to husbands, we shouldn't be importing into this superior-inferior, but it fits that mutual submission to one another. So let's think more about what that might look like. So I said I was going to give you three options, let me do that. Uh, Some people read this in light of uh, Aristotle's teaching about the household. This is a common framework where uh, someone addresses the husbands, uh, the slave owners, um, uh, parents, so forth. It's called a household code. When Aristotle uses this, he uses it to talk about how the household can be like a microcosm uh, for the the larger empire. So what happens in the house, uh, there should be order, and it should reflect what's going on in the larger empire. And so some people are reading this as saying, what Paul is doing is something similar and he's calling for order within their culture. He wants them to, um, he's not so much saying this is the way things have to be, but rather in this culture that you live in, you don't want to create unnecessary disturbances that will get in the way of the kingdom uh, spreading. So that's one possible way of reading this. That's how it seems to function in First Peter. Uh, if you want to look at this same kind of teaching in uh, 1 Peter. Um, some uh, think, no, that's, that's taking it too easy. Rather, these are some sort of uh, kind of creation theologically ordained roles, where the husband is always supposed to be, in some sense, the head in the relationship, and the wife is always supposed to be in a kind of submissive role in the relationship, because it's meant to theologically reflect the God or the Father and Son relationship, Father uh, God, God the Son relationship, or the Christ and the Church relationship, uh, which is is possible, but I think uh, creates its own kind of questions. My own reading of making sense of this, and I—I I could be wrong here. Uh, I've studied this several times, and you know, it's—you've got to approach this with humility, um, because it's complex. But my own take on this is what—what um, what Paul is doing here is what he seems to do elsewhere, where he's saying, "Yeah, you live in this culture, and so rather than uh, up overturn the entire cultural situation where you." Uh, you can no longer have the master-slave relationship. It's rather uh, live in your culture in a way that reflects Christ. So in your culture, it's a patriarchal culture. There are husbands uh, who are the head of the household, and uh, wives are kind of in this uh, submissive role. That's kind of the typical first-century patriarchal household. And what Paul says, I think, is in this relationship uh, where the husband has this uh, this role as the head and the wife is uh, in this secondary kind of role, you are to reflect Christ in that. Which is different than saying uh, this patriarchal system, household system in the first century, needs to be the system across all times and all cultures for all Christians. So rather, wherever Christians find themselves, and this is one of the powers of uh, the, the spread of the Christian faith, as Christian faith has spread across so many cultures in ways that other religions haven't, because the Christian faith Um, is able to adapt to different cultures. It holds certain values closely and certain confessions closely, but it shows up in different kind of cultural expressions. And I think that's what we are getting here, and I'll show you why I think that might be the case. But with that framework, uh, as Paul is calling wives to submit to husbands, um, and we hear submission different, we also might hear what it means to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Earlier in uh, 425... Christ is the head of the church and what it means for him to be the head of the church in 425 is to be like the source of nourishment and sustenance. It was kind of a weird first century view. We think head, we think who's in charge. We think rule. The closest to, uh, place to this where Paul talks about Christ as the head of the church, it's about nourishment, which is been exactly what he goes on to say um, in the second part of verse 23. Uh, for he, meaning Christ, is the savior of the body, the one who sustains and takes care of her. If you push this analogy where the husband is now uh, the savior of the wife, you realize that you've pushed this way too far. So as we're thinking about how the Christ church relationship teaches us about the husband wife relationship, we realize we can't push any of these analogies too far. They're just meant to get us a step or two. So Paul is not saying husband is the savior of the wife as Christ is the savior of the church body. Instead, I think he's saying, as Christ is the head who nourishes the church, so the husband in the first century role is the one who cares for and nurtures the wife. He's kind of the one who is supposed to be the one who's bringing in uh, the things that, that help take care of the household. So in this scenario, what does that mean? It means that the wife should uh, have a proper kind of, um, of submission to her husband in that. What exactly that looks like? I'm not entirely sure in the first century. When it says, in everything, in verse 24, Uh, This is where uh, we literalist Church of Christ readers have a hard time uh, not hearing him meaning literally everything. Paul does this kind of language where he says all, and he doesn't mean all. So he does it, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, same language. We have experienced hardship in every way. No, we know you're using hyperbole there. It doesn't mean he's lying. It just means when Paul says that, he's saying, like, in lots of ways, Uh, not in every single way. And we know this because if a uh, in the first-century household, the wife was expected to care for her uh, husband's gods. So she was kind of in charge of the, the the household idols or gods or ancestor worship. There is no way that Paul is saying, in every way, be submissive, including you know, show dedication and proper respect to the household gods. Absolutely not. He doesn't mean in every way to mean in every way. There is definitely qualifications here, even if unstated. But Uh, Nonetheless, uh, as the woman finds herself in this role uh, in the first century culture, uh, she uh, responds in a way that shows um, respect and uh, some degree of uh, of submission to uh, one who is supposed to be caring for her. So here Paul then turns his focus to the husbands, and I'm going to try to diagram this. Good, I've got five minutes. I think I can make it happen. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her uh, so that he might uh, cleanse her, uh, washing her with the water of the word, uh, so that he might present her to himself uh, glorious and without, um, excuse me, glorious church, not having stain or blemish or any such thing, uh, but she might be holy and blameless. Likewise, husbands ought to love uh, their wives uh, as themselves, as their own body. Uh, The one who loves himself uh, loves his wife. For no one hates his own body, uh, but cares for it, just as Christ cared for the church. We are members of his body. On account of this, um, so he's quoting Genesis here, a man will leave his father and his mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will be one flesh. All right, let me erase this now. So here Paul does something that is Uh, going against the first century, or he's kind of Christianizing the first century cultural expression. So here, he starts out in a way that would have probably sounded quite at home in first century household codes. Yeah, all right. Probably the men are like, you got it, Paul. That's my man. But then notice what Paul does, where he calls the husbands to sacrificial love. And what you get in here, it's hard not to see as a kind of, as we saw in verse 21, mutual submission. Which heads all this up. So, Paul takes something in the first century, sounds like a first century norm. And then what he does is he then says, but, it seems like he's saying as Christians, what this looks like, particularly for husbands, is that this doesn't mean as it would in the first century as she submits her job is to elevate your honor and status what she is to do are things that are going to make you look better what she's going to do is provide space for you to advance your honor paul says no the christ way for the husbands as wives submit is in the sense to give of themselves to not seek their own honor and their own status uh, but to love their wives as their own body not to seek their own self-promotion so Uh, And here, I think we're getting something closer, similarly to the God, the Father, I should say Father, and Son relationship, which sometimes the husband wife relationship is seen as where the Father gives all to the Son and the Son gives all back to the Father. So it's not. One is superior to the other is kind of subservient. It's this mutual serving and caring for one another. Uh, so um, to think about this, I wish I had, uh, I mean, this is so complex and we'll actually deal with it more uh, Sunday. But to, to give an example of what this looked like for my wife and I recently, um, for the last couple years, uh, we've been talking about uh, whether or not to have a fourth kid. And I did not want to have a fourth kid. And she really wanted to have a fourth kid. And so as we were trying to um, think through what this looks like, we tried to operate with this kind of paradigm where I sought to listen to her and care for her and think about her needs. And she also thought about my own needs and my own concerns, my own worries. So it wasn't like, because she even said at one point, look, if you just want to say no, we can be done. And I really wanted to be like, all right, (laughs) vasectomy. But uh, instead, uh, it was one of those moments, I hate to ever be the kind of good person in my own story, but this is one of those where I think, I'm not saying I did good, but God did good in me, because there were multiple times where I was about to, like, jump at something, and I could hear that voice being like, come on, Josh, this time get it right. Um, And instead, I sought to listen to her, and she listened to me, and we went through this two-year process of praying and and discussing and tears and frustration. Um, and uh, at the end of it, we kind of came to a, a certain kind of compromise um, where uh, we were willing to try for a bit and if it didn't work out, uh, then that was going to be the end of it. That was kind of how we we decided to meet. And um, without getting into too much uh, detail, um, things didn't work out the way she wanted to. There was a couple of really heartbreaking miscarriages in the midst of this and um, and part of the reason I bring that up is because that was painful for her and for me. I was, I was very sad, uh, especially for her. But I, I as we talked about it, I asked about, you know, are you mad at me going through this? And she said, I can't be mad at you because we did this thing. Had you just said, it's my way, that's it, then I would really be struggling with resentment. But because you walked with me and listened to me and we worked together, and I'm still sad, I'm still disappointed but I don't have resentment toward you. And I was like, oh, I got it right this time or we got it right together. And I think that's the model that we're called to, not import first century Greco-Roman households, but rather import the Christian faith into whatever cultural uh, expression it might be seen in. So in closing, in in our 21st century American context, that might look like a different household code than Christianity might look like in the first century or in our neighboring European or Asian countries. But whatever it is, they are to live in that in a way that reflects Christ with its own kind of fluidity. All right, masters and slaves and children and parents next week as we wrap it up.